0: This episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Tor Nightfire, publisher of the new book Sundial by Coutriona Ward, who previously brought us the book The Last House on Needless Street. All Rob wanted was a normal life. She almost got it, too. But when her older daughter, Callie, exhibits the same darkness Rob remembers from her own childhood she left behind at Sundial, the mother and daughter embark on a dark desert journey to the past in hopes of redeeming their future. Expect a lot of twists and turns in this dark family gothic. Author Joe Hill called Sundial a heart-in-the-throat smash. And Paul Tremblay, author of Head Full of Ghosts, said Sundial is a wild, twisted family gothic unlike you've read before and one you won't soon forget. Sundial is available now everywhere books are sold. And for more info, you can always head to tornightfire.com. Again, that is tornightfire.com to get more info about Sundial.
1: Tonight's episode is also brought to you by Yellow Veil Pictures. Out now on digital, see what Variety called an exploration of paralyzing effects of guilt. Laos' first horror director, Maddie Doe, uh, returned with a genre-bending time-travel ghost story called The Long Walk, now available on digital and on demand. Following an incredible launch at the Toronto International Film Festival in Venice, uh, Maddie Doe's poignant The Long Walk can now be purchased on digital platforms and available for pre-order on Blu-ray and VinegarSyndrome.com. An old scavenger recklessly exploits a ghostly companion Ability to traverse time hoping to prevent his mother's terminal suffering but finds that some past wounds don't heal so easily see what screen daily called metaphysical mind melting part by heading over to thelongwalkfilm.com to watch the trailer and find out more information about the release
0: Hello, and welcome to Colors of the Dark. I'm your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane. How you doing this week?
1: I am here. We're still open season around here. We're still here.
0: Off season. No, wait. It's open season. We're open
1: season, and we're going to get to off
0: season. We're getting to the off season. Yeah, we're
1: open season, and we're going to (laughs) get halfway through (laughs) It really was the worst. That was a um, shitty
0: lead-in. That's okay.
1: And, and now there's no exit. Oh, well, that brings us to our first movie.
0: Oh, check that out. That was some clever shit you just did there. Okay, we're in. We're in. We're going that was to quick. No that's probably, probably the quickest in
1: we've ever had. So it <laughs> may be too quick.
0: <laughs> wow I don't yeah I'm still getting whiplash off that one but you know. know what we're going in okay let's talk about no exit premiere this week on hulu um so the setup of this one is that during a blizzard this woman is um driving home quickly she's trying to get to her mother who has just had an aneurysm and uh, she is driving up this crazy mountain in a blizzard they shut the mountain down they send her to this like mountain center at the top of the mountain and the cops say you can't leave you have to stay there and she is now stuck at this mountain center with like four other people and then something really creepy happens and she has to figure out who it is
1: yeah and it's one of those ones where it has quite a few it has a few twists mm-hmm. but i kept expecting it to keep twisting like i thought it would be one of those like twist, twist twist right to the end and so i was a little a little underwhelmed but it's it's a very solid solidly made piece and it like Mm -hmm. certainly wasn't boring. It's like it it was one of those films where I'm like, oh no, that's solid. I enjoyed it but I don't I doubt I would think about it much. You know, uh, I really like seeing Dennis Haysbert uh, who it's funny. It's just funny how culture changes. But for me, he's the guy from Suture. And what <laughs> else? He's the guy from the insurance commercial. Yep. Or if you watch Twenty Four, he's the president of America uh, back in the day. The uh, the first black president, probably, and one of the earliest on TV shows, probably. Um, and he's you know he's a really good actor, and he has such a great voice and like presence that I'm a little. I sometimes wonder if people do commercials that get too big. Maybe that does take away from you know the power they get to have on screen. But I thought he was great, and you know, there's I like the lead too. I thought she was really interesting thing she's kind Havana of come out Rose yeah yeah i, I
0: really kind of liked desperate. her performance yeah for me yeah. this the first half of this i was like all in um i was like holy shit this is such a brilliant setup and then the second half it turned into a very kind of standard thriller i'll say even kind of a cat and mouse chase movie because yeah. it, it did it all the twists were kind of wrapped up by the midway point. And then it just became kind of more of a cat and mouse story, um, which was okay for me. The, it, it did not, and as kind of uh, excited as I was during the first half. Yeah, yeah no, um, I agree with that, I think. But it did have some cool thrill moments to it. It definitely, the first half had some great tension. It was a cool gag with a nail gun. Um, yeah, yeah but, no, the, you the,
1: the nail gun stuff was pretty good. And there's a couple of brutal moments where you're like, you know, agonizing with the pain. But, you know, child and peril stories. So I feel like with child and peril stories, usually they can't go too hard. Yeah, Like, you know, it goes up to a certain level, but it's a good fun thriller. It's a good solid thriller. And that one's on Hulu, right?
0: Yeah, that one's on Hulu right now.
1: Um, well, okay. we have to we have to bring up because of last week, two weeks ago's episode, which was all about Texas Chainsaw. Um, we have to bring this up because this has probably been the biggest talking point out there. You know, this is like definitely love it or hate it i have not seen much middle ground uh, on this movie and mostly on the day that i saw it um it was all the morning was all hated like i saw I've nothing but negative
0: yeah it has been either just this oh my god that was the worst film ever made that was an affront to toby hooper's pure existence um or hey guys that was pretty fun I mean, how could
1: anyone, that's the thing, like, especially after our episode with Brian, I'm sitting there going, how could anyone have anything as an affront given that, like, Toby's movie is so singular, but then, like, all the sequels are so all over the place. They're everywhere. It's the messiest franchise. Well, uh, uh, next to Amityville. Um, Well, I'll tell you, I I went in very low expectations by the time I saw it, I saw it with two people on a big screen, like we put it on a big screen, and, um, you know, two, I would say, fairly discerning taste people, Uh, and about first 10 minutes, I was like, okay, I see why people are probably not liking this, and, yep. This is, I probably am going to agree. And then the first moment where there's like a first visceral piece of action, like somebody uh-huh. gets their hand bent back. Anyway, that was in the like,
0: ambulance. Yeah.
1: Where you're like, Ooh, uh, as soon as that moment happened, I was like going, Oh wait, well, I'm, I'm into this now. And then I start enjoying, and then I started looking over at them and they were clearly enjoying. And then about halfway through, I'm like, wait a minute. I think I'm more than, I think this is like my favorite thing. Like just not favorite as in like storytelling, but as just an, as an experience of just carnage. Um, You know, I think it's one of my favorites of the sequels in in terms of that angle. Um, I also don't care about and I don't care about the Sally. The one thing I see a lot of people say, oh, but Sally, I'm like, let me tell you what I feel about that. If it was the same actress, if she was alive and we were and we were bringing her back the way they brought Jamie. I would, of course, you'd want to make sure everything is being respected, but but it's not. And it's just an actor playing a a famous Mm -hmm. role. And I'm like, no, it's fun. It was a fun use of it. It was always surprising. The movie's always surprising with the violence. Like you're constantly going, oh, shit, you know? Yeah,
0: and that's what definitely sold me on it. I do have to say the first 20 minutes, or I guess it's up to that first ambulance kill, which hit like right at the 17 minute mark, which is a really great way to kind of, you know, it was a good pace. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, like, you know, when they're introducing us to the town full of influencers and then even into like the ambulance scene with the, you know, do what be the good boy I taught you to be. I was like, oh God, I am so not into this. And then that first kill, I was like, okay, cool, I'm kind of in Betty style right you got
1: Betty style. Yeah,
0: that. it was total clever, visceral um and then from there, you know I I midway through I got a phone call from um, like USC stuff and I had to stop and take a phone call about a student production. And then I remember thinking like, oh, it's like 10 o'clock. I could just go to bed. And I was like, no, I really want to finish that. Oh, that's and good, yeah. yeah, it was like suddenly like, no, I want to keep going. And I could have easily stopped. Then, so. well, and it and
1: discuss some things like Alice Krieg, always a winner, right? Mm-hmm. We all love Alice Krieg. She's great to bring in there. I, I'm not going to give it away for those who didn't see it, but I love the idea of where the mask comes from. In mm-hmm. this movie, I think it was so well done as kind of in the background and it's like got actual quite a lot of meaning like emotionally to the character, which I thought that was great. And the coolest thing I think both me and you will, I don't know if you know this yet, but it, but you'll like this, is that, and, and I will say to people, the only character I cared about in this movie is leather.
0: Leatherface. And that is right. very rare
1: for me with the killers in movies. I don't I usually enjoy watching them, but I don't care. I didn't care. I really disliked all the influencers. I disliked there's a there's one character particularly that I kept thinking if this character doesn't die, I think I'm going to hate this movie <laughs> and I was rewarded nicely. That's all I'm going to say. Um, but Mark Burnham who is the bad guy Teddy in mm-hmm. Low Life is Leatherface.
0: Oh my God. I had and no he is idea. so
1: bad at it. So, I mean, like, because I loved him as, and Low Life as the Life was so yeah, who, yeah, me and Beck have both been kind of championing that one for the last few years. It's such a great film. And he is, re, he looks like Michael Shannon deranged in uh-huh. um, Low Life. So, you never see his face in this. He's in the darkness one time, but he is, he is Leatherface. And I can't help but think, you know, often it's stuntmen, right? Playing these killers. But in this case, he's an just an actor right and not a stuntman and i think it came through i think there's something in the personality of this killer that i really liked i you know i would never want to overhype it to people like yes the story has messy points and like you know continuity of of characters is obviously going to be all over the place from others but in terms of like actual viscera and making things like politically incorrect with kills and like make in ways that is still surprising which is something that sometimes horror doesn't do right now I was surprised, and uh, we all three of us looked around. We all were like, "This was a lot of fun." So, I'm like, "Good job, David Blue Garcia, directing." You know, I think a tough movie, and 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 you know,
0: I also have to applaud the the length um yeah right yeah it was 83 minutes 83 (laughs) minutes man i i went on a very brisk tirade on twitter a couple of days ago about that man i am just sick of like oh i want to go see the new batman it's three hours long yeah but uh, but
1: that i that i i agree with you i wish it was shorter but that one i've heard is like a a a seven like horror film basically with Batman is what I'm hearing. Oh, I'm
0: still going so, to yeah, see yeah, yeah. it. I'm, I'm, I'm debating whether or not I can take my kids because both of them are Man. like, we want to go see the new Batman. And I'm Not like, from what I,
1: I hear. Marty, I think he's like serial killer kind of Zodiac killer type wow. thing
0: okay yeah, yeah maybe not <laughs>
1: okay. but maybe watch it first but, but it does it does look bad but I agree with you in general like I, I think you're watching what lies beneath was one of them right
0: I'm gonna talk about that in a sec yeah, yeah, yeah what yeah. lies beneath which well your running time I thought might have been the right run- yeah go a for little it, over guys. two hours man that was that was but I mean that's back in the 2000s but yeah, yeah. um but yeah I love an 83 minute movie especially yeah. this one fun kills I didn't care about the continuity or who was playing yeah. what character or what happened to Sally I was just like this is just it's fun
1: it's, <laughs> it's reinvented so itself too many times for me to like hold that you know what I mean like there's been too many complete like sometimes the family has a mom sometimes it doesn't sometimes you know what I mean like there's been so many reinventions that don't ask me to care about any continuity here and I really actively disliked the one before this one Leatherface. Mm so even though i had all the things i usually would like in a movie so this one just i I don't know satisfied and i'm i'm also glad what's important whether we liked it or not because people were divided um it was the number two film on netflix that week it uh everyone was talking about it i thought that was cool like here's a horror film that didn't even get to theaters which i think is another thing i'd bring up i think is a a missed opportunity i think one Mm -hmm. week in a movie theater they would have made a ton of money and then go straight to Netflix. Just one week. I think so many people would have wanted to have seen that on a screen. Um, I feel
0: like Netflix really had to swing hard to get this because with something like Leatherface, even if the movie was terrible, you could still run theaters with it and have made your money back just based on pure marketing power alone. Yeah. And I think that Netflix had to take a really big swing for this. But I think it was a smart one. Yeah. Netflix has been doing that with horror and and taking these bigger swings. And it keeps proving like, you know, seeing Archive 80. I can't even remember the number anymore. And it was like three weeks ago. Yeah, um, But Archive 81 was like 83. Um, yeah. No, that's a different Archive. That's but a archive yeah. I mean, yeah. um archive 81 i mean that was number 1 for the whole week um yeah. so i mean i think that netflix keeps taking these horror swings and they're really paying off for
1: them and this must be the hardest film they've ever had cuz i mean I th- i'm thinking some of the kills in this are like really no
0: perfect. perfection was pretty squirmy
1: oh uh, you're right like in terms of actual subject matter perfection yeah i'd say those two together like this is the most graphic and yeah. the most like like in terms of kills and stuff uh, for, for something that's just popping up on netflix but you're right perfection topic wise i think is pretty pretty rough yeah no It's. i
0: remember good. when perfection came out because my mom i mean like i think most people do they log yeah. into netflix and they immediately see that kind of ranking of what's number one and i remember my mom clicking on perfection and then calling me up and being like, I don't understand. What am I watching? And me having to be like, I know, I know. But it's like this this kind of, it levels the playing field where it's not immediately you're presented with just what you'd like to watch, which is what happens when I log into Amazon. When I log into Amazon, it's here's the list of horror films that are referential to what you watched last week. With Netflix, you do that, get a little bit more of a level playing field with those top 10s.
1: It's interesting that we we're talking about this here because um, No Exit in every other country was on Disney Plus, which wow, is really interesting to Fox think of this like film. kind of hard thriller. Yeah, yeah. So in America, we get this weird deal where things go to Hulu and and maybe Paramount Plus or whatever. But, well, but I, all so I saw the a lot of people company. who were tweeting, Hulu you know, from other is,
0: countries. Yeah, Hulu yeah. is also Disney and Fox. Right. So. But,
1: so what I wonder, though, is if that's a sign that at some point our Disney Plus, which is very family friendly in this country, at some point will have a bit of an after dark wing to it yeah. with some more adult material like that, because that is pretty pretty adult. I mean, it's child apparel mm-hmm. peril and pretty extreme. So anyway, I thought that was really interesting when a lot of people were like, oh, I'm watching a Disney Plus. I was like, what are they watching?
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that must yeah.
1: be, that must be how it's structured. Um, I watched some weird stuff, man. I, I got a couple like um, new indies that were pretty interesting uh a film that a couple of my friends know the director so a couple different people had ta- recommended this to me over the last year called i blame society um that is a new film on shutter and it was at festivals last year by gillian a uh, Gillian Horvist um and this is you know if you're looking for a laugh and a really weird almost john waters version of horror um this is an have you heard of this one
0: uh you have me at Chase Williamson but no I have not I'm looking at the IMDB right now
1: Okay so the act the actor, the lead actress is also the director and she's playing a struggling filmmaker it feels very much like something somebody came up with like during peak depression of the pandemic where it's like oh my god what's happening let's make let's turn the cameras on ourselves and she's really funny she's got like a natural sense of humor this character um, and the, probably the person and she's struggling and she's been struggling to finish like different documentaries and she's going on like a long walk with chase williamson who's her good friend And she's like, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go back to this like one documentary idea I'd started about like, like based on all those great podcasts, the making of a perfect murder. But like as a filmmaker, where I'd basically plot out different friends' murders. And I would like detail how I would kill them. And, and that's all it is. Like I'd go to their house and go through all the stuff I how I would ki- murder them. And he's just like, uh, that's pretty weird. And you're know, like, it's just <laughs> super awkward. And, and then she goes, but I want to be completely honest with you before we make that and just tell you that, you know, I really hate your girlfriend. And she's like the, the worst person on earth. And he, and he's just like, fuck you. And like it, it runs their friendship for a beat. And so it's like, you're like, oh, she's like, I don't want to say Woody Allen-esque, but she's almost got that quality uh, acerbic kind of like there's just something about her that I don't want to say is unlikable, but borderline. Mm -hmm. And she and a lot of the scenes are just her and her boyfriend as she's talking about her struggles to make a film. And as it goes, the pressure kind of mounts until eventually she she basically witnesses slash participates in an accidental ish murder and then realizes oh i could just do this i'll just document me like knocking off people who annoy me and so it's almost like curb your enthusiasm of murder with with, with this woman uh, knocking people off as uh, under the guise of making like documentary and she's cameras all over herself so it's really absurd in a lot of ways but it's like only 80 minutes and i think it's a nice fresh it just felt like a nice refresher if you've been watching a lot of like serious horror films and it was fun to see at the end when it ended i didn't realize but uh chase williamson co-wrote it with her oh wow. so, so that was kind of neat and he has a he has a scene that you will uh be i will talk to you about it afterwards because it relates to st- to becca stuff uh is chase's key scene in this movie so i'll be very curious to hear your thoughts on when you see it <laughs> uh but it's a no it's an interesting one i had a couple friends who really felt like it was pretty subversive and had that John Waters sensibility almost in terms Mm -hmm. of going after things. And I agree, there are certain scenes that really made me laugh and other parts where you're like, it feels like it's just kind of being thrown together, but in a way that is sometimes nice, uh, feels a little fresh. So that's called, it's on Shutter called I Blame Society.
0: Nice. Um, Well, I'm going to jump into one that we both watched and this is brand new on Apple Plus. Now, as I discussed on our Patreon channel, Apple Plus is one of those things that I pay for each month And forget, I do. Um, And then suddenly something appears and I'm like, oh, hey, where's that? Apple Plus. Wait, hold on. Wait. Oh, I am paying for that. And this is how the whole system works. (laughs) <laughs> um, because I have done that with Paramount Plus as well, where the kids like are wanting to watch the new Paw Patrol movie, and I'm like, "Sorry, kids, it's on Paramount." Wait, wait, why? Why do I have access to Paramount Plus? Um, and this is how VOD gets you, because um, suddenly, then I'll do like these mad like inspections of everything that I'm paying for, and I'm suddenly like, "Why have I been paying for this for two years?" And it's just that's that's how it works. Well, I um, think
1: they get you with uh, like. Quiet Place 2 will come to Paramount yeah. Plus so you buy it for that because it's free for a week but then you forget about it And Until the Paw
0: later. Patrol movie Yes,
1: exactly. I did do that too, actually
0: <laughs> You watched the Paw Patrol movie I, too I did
1: watch but... the Paw Patrol movie
0: Yeah, it was fun. It was actually kind of fun <laughs> Um, but anyway, so severance comes to Apple plus and suddenly I'm like, oh shit, I have Apple plus. I ended up watching a bunch of stuff there, um, while I was kind of inspecting their horror stuff, um, which you can hear about on our Patreon show, but I am hooked on severance. It's only three episodes, which I think is probably fun. I think if I binged this, I probably would burn out pretty quickly because it is some heavy, heavy material. Um, but because it is kind of tearing itself and there's only three episodes out. So far, I'm kind of like satiated. I, I just can't wait to keep watching it. Um, So this is Adam Scott and a whole cast of like amazing people. John wait, T- is it related
1: uh, to Hellraiser Bloodline at all?
0: No. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No. I know, I know. You were really hoping he'd have a ponytail in yeah, this. He no doesn't. All right, I'll he
1: watch doesn't. it. Anyway.
0: Um, so this one takes place like 10 minutes in the future. It's a sci-fi <laughs> concept, but it feels like... Like next week, sci-fi, where everything is as we have it today. Everything feels exactly much in the world that we live in, except this company, um, Lumen Industries, has developed this technology that allows people to separate their work life and their personal life. So the moment that they pass through this gate in the building... They completely forget their personal life. They have no clue who they are, except they are there to work. And then when they leave in the afternoon, they forget their entire work life, everything that has happened at work. And then they can only remember their personal life. And so it is a true separation of work life and personal life. And it causes them to kind of have double personalities. And we follow Adam Scott through this, where he has his Audi, and they refer to it as their Audis and Innies. Innies, always the ones who are in work are always kind of guessing what their outer life might be like, like, I wonder if I do this or do I even know you outside of work? But that's, that's this whole reason is it's trying to separate personal life and work life. And you also get the idea that what they are doing is so confidential that it can't be released, that if they're personal, they knew what they were doing in their personal life, that it would somehow corrupt the company. And so it's it's an interesting setup. Now, by the second episode, you get that it is definitely headed in a more horrific path. Um, some of the And that's all I
1: am at, just so you know, I've just watched the first two.
0: So the second episode ends with John Tutoro's character having this like crazy, intense, nightmarish hallucination while at work. And you get the idea that something, not only is something that the company's doing corrupt, but that there is some type of mental corruption taking place within um, the actual process of kind of severing personal and work life. And so now getting into the third, it's definitely heading down a horror path. Like you start getting a real creepy vibe by the end of the first episode and it just keeps pushing it. And and it's Um, like,
1: it's funny because the people, the Audis think that what they do at work must be really important. But then like when you see them at work, they all just sit in this like cubicle with just four computers and they basically push buttons when numbers come up and do very little. So it's, so you don't really, at least at the point I'm at, you have no real, it's like office space light, like, you know, nothing's happening. It's everything.
0: Yeah. It feels very office space, but you really start getting the idea that there's something boiling beneath.
1: It's really well directed. Like Ben Stiller, I've always said is a very good director. Like I Mm -hmm. I always thought Cable Guy was a really surprisingly well-made dark comedy uh i really like um some of those early his uh can't remember the the, the dating one with ethan hawk and winona ryder now but uh oh the classic the classic oh. smacker comedy uh oh why uh, it, why does it dance. forsake me yes why is it forsake oh
0: god me? the dance anyway Shit. ben
1: stiller and ben Stiller's in it as the guy who has a um planet of the apes uh uh, toy on his desk that he doesn't like people touching. Um, Give me
0: three seconds. On yeah, that it'll come. One.
1: Anyway, it's a movie I always liked. But he, he's a really good, he's a really solid director. And this is really well made. This feels, uh, you know, very uh, clean sci-fi film directing. But it, it has a great opening where the girl who we haven't met yet, she just like wakes up on a table and has no idea why she's there. And mm-hmm. has no idea who she is. And it's really effective. It's like a great way to just throw you in. I love the amnesia movie, so it has a little bit of that.
0: And that's a really interesting um, thing that emerges in the second episode is what if while you are working, you fucking hate your job and you don't want to be doing it anymore, but your Audi, the person who you are on the outside controls whether or not you have to be there. Because as soon as you leave that doorway, you're going to forget how much you hate your fucking job until you come back the next day. And then it's just like misery again. And
1: it's like an eternal Um, for the people working. It's like an eternal day. Yeah, because they don't really sleep. They're not the ones who get to go home and go to sleep. So they're like always working, effectively. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, reality no. Reality bites. Reality bites. My my Sharona. Guess. Yes, that, <laughs> that, that is a fun movie. Yeah, uh, definitely showing my generation with that one. <laughs> uh, but
0: so, but that is Severance on Apple Plus. Um, definitely dark comedy sci-fi by way of creepy horror surrealism.
1: Another, I saw another. Yeah, and thank you for that rec because I I. I had heard of it but i probably wouldn't have pushed play if you hadn't told me and i'm really digging it it's like perfect when you don't have enough time for a movie at night and it's 50 minutes and um it's super interesting um i watched another new indie like like the last one whereas again lo-fi called alone with you um this one's directed by emily bennett and justin brooks uh emily bennett co-directed probably because she's also the star
0: mm-hmm. of the
1: film and uh, and probably some of our listeners would be aware of this because barbara crampton is is in it um there's a couple guest stars of people you'd recognize who are just phone calls in it because this is very much a pandemic movie um this is a young woman she's waiting for uh in new york a new york apartment she's waiting for her partner to fly back um and join her for like their anniversary dinner and she keeps leaving messages for her girlfriend but her girlfriend never responds and then this other friend calls her and is like what are you trying to call her for you like know, it, it, it's pointless you're never going to be together and it just the world very repulsion-y in the sense that the world keeps getting smaller and smaller for her in this apartment all shot in her apartment uh the interactions are all the calls uh barbara crampton's her like religious mom who doesn't approve of her life and mm-hmm. you know it's a very interesting i think emily bennett the, the actress does as an actor does a good job in very limited with very limited things to be able to do and bounce off and it does occasionally cut to like a beach scene that is like probably from the past and and adds quite a lot of atmosphere i think to it you know the only negative i'm going to say about this because i will never pick on movies that are made this way during that time the only i noticed for me this time because it's so clearly made in the middle of the pandemic that because we just have never exited the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It makes it a, like if, if we were clear left a couple of months clear of the pandemic right now, I think I would be able to appreciate a lot more of this because there's nothing they're doing wrong. It's just, I've noticed with a couple of movies lately, I, you know, it, it, it's landing at a time where it's like, we still aren't clear. And so it's a little hard after two years to get as excited about that kind of claustrophobia. So, Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a little pandemic burnout of mine, but I do think they're doing a lot of interesting things in it. Um, so I, you know, I admired it as a a movie shot during these, you know, times. So interesting, you know, interesting to find a way to express yourself with just one person stuck alone in the house basically.
0: Um, And what was that one called again?
1: That one's called alone with you. And I don't think that's on shutter yet. I think I paid on Amazon to watch it for a few bucks. Um,
0: Excellent. Well, I'm going to take us back in time a little bit and we are going to go back to 1963 with this wild little hammer film that Shout Factory did a fancy schmance Blu-ray release of. And this is paranoiac. Mm. Um, which I had never even heard of until this arrived in my mailbox, and I was like, "Okay, Shout Factory, let's roll this." Um, this is a wild movie. I had so much fun with this. I watched it last night. Um, directed by Freddie Francis, who is a major horror director from this time period, did a yeah. ton of stuff, but ended up becoming an even more major DP. Did Elephant Man, Cape Fear, the original Dune was just became this legendary DP. Um, So, but he helmed this one, the setup, this is Oliver Reed, but it's one of the the early Oliver Mm. Reed stories. So Oliver Reed and his sister are part of this incredibly wealthy family in town, the Ashby's. And um, you find out that they had had some type of tragedy like 10 years ago and one of their younger brothers supposedly fell off a cliff or threw himself off a cliff and they never found the body. Mm-hmm. And the sister has never recovered. It's been like a decade and she's still just like, Freddie. when are you coming home? Or I don't think his name's Freddie, but yeah. Um, You know, just when are you coming home? I, I need him home. Like she does not believe he's dead. And then as the movie opens, she legit starts seeing an adult version of him like hanging around the garden and you don't know whether she's having hallucinations or not until he shows up at the door saying, Oh yeah, I actually didn't kill myself. I just did that as a ruse. I ran away cause y'all suck, but I'm back now for my inheritance. <laughs> and immediately she is like, and this all happens in the first 15 minutes of the movie. And, um, Oliver Reed is crazy playboy with a drinking problem, like really wealthy. Playboy with a drinking problem. And he's immediately like, I know you're not my dead brother. I know you're trying to scam the fam. And in the meantime, the sister is like, oh, my God, I'm so excited you're home. And then it gets really fucking creepy. There is a masked killer in parts um, who is going around with this like giant like hook thing and a mask on. And it just gets absolutely crazy. Mm. This had so many twists. It was a blast. Um, I've seen the cover, but I've never watched this one. It sounds cool. Yeah, this definitely um, I'd never heard of. And I, I'm so shocked that this hasn't gotten more play, especially as kind of like a classic horror film. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed this. This is Paranoic. So we're both and- giving
1: one little play. So you're doing an old plug. I'll do a not quite like new, new, but because uh, I've already lost all horror cred with the people who probably hated TCM and are like, I can't believe you like that I can't that believe thing. they liked well, it. Well, I'm going to triple down on it because this movie was like, I remember when this came out, no one said anything good to his except for maybe my friend Dick. Um, but there's a movie I, I I stumbled upon for weird reasons, but it was called Polaroid from just a couple years ago. It's like 2019.
0: I remember this. I and I didn't I see it. think I watched it. it.
1: Well, I, I knew there was a short and then there's a feature. And I, I just wrote this down because like, sometimes you're in a mood where you're missing movies that feel like late nineties, early two thousands are like with teenagers mm-hmm. getting picked off in creative ways. And this one I heard at the time heard nothing good about it. Um, and I got to say, like I had a, quite a lot of fun. Like and if I picked apart the story, maybe not, but I thought the atmosphere. So it's a girl. Um, the cold open is like a girl, discovering a gets left this old Polaroid camera that her mom had used and takes a photo of her friend. And there's like the smudge shadow figure in the corner of the Polaroid. And then eventually that figure comes and, you know, horrific kind of demon looking thing uh, murders uh, that girl. And then, then our group of teenagers like enter the story and this, you know, kind of loner girl uh, gets the camera and she takes a group photo of all her friends at a party. And there's that smudge again and it seems to basically be going from person to person and you can't, and what's, re- there's a really fun scene where they try to get rid re- it. Well, just burn the photo, right? Like let's get done with this. And they burn the photo. And as it, as it reaches, like the, the flames reach the arm in the photo, one of the characters arm lights on fire. And it, so it's ah! like, so you realize very quickly, like I thought it did a good job of taking a high concept very, And it's probably more like an, it's like a high, probably a high-budget indie. It doesn't look like a studio kind of level, but it's almost. And it did a good job of taking this high concept very quickly and and coming up with the, all the reasons why we can't just destroy the camera and the film. And I thought that was cool. Like, that was the cool part. And, the, you know, the teenager the characters are, are just whatever in this kind of movie. But I gotta say, I was like, for late night viewing, I was like kind of um, nicely surprised. It had a couple really cool scenes. I thought the demon, the, the creature thing itself was actually pretty well done and more of a, you know, more of a shadow figure. You know, once it gets to the explanation of how it all begins, it's like, okay. But yeah, no, this was just, I feel like sometimes these movies, and I, I feel like maybe we need to do a rediscovery of 2019 to twenty twenty. To the ones that fell through the cracks due to pandemics. pandemic, pandemic, um, you know, weird things like that. So I, I don't know. I enjoyed this, so I, I had to give it a little, a little plug.
0: Polaroid.
1: Polaroid, and I believe that that was on Amazon.
0: Yeah, I've had this on my watch list since 2019. I just mm. looked and it's been sitting there, so it must be time to visit it. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to quickly – I've been re-watching some movies from the 2000s um, because I'm getting ready to do the screen drafts on Alligators and Gators um, – or Alligators and Crocs. So I've been re-watching a lot of the 2007 Alligators and Crocs movies. I spoke about Rogue on our Deep Cut show, and I at least wanted to give a plug to Prime Evil, um, which was Prime Evil. So I remember not liking this one at all when it came out in 2007. Like, if you'd asked me, you know, what was my 2000s? Because 2007 was like the golden year of crocodiles and alligators where we had primeval blackwater rogue and croc all came out that Mm -hmm. same year um it felt like all within the same summer it was like to the point where i was confusing them and out of the four of them i definitely considered blackwater to be kind of the best movie during that time. And as I talked about on Deep Cuts, Rogue was actually a lot more fun than I remembered it. Primeval, I remember not liking at the time because I thought it was too kind of, um, it's not fun. It's not meant to be kind of a fun, like, you know, giant killer crocodile movie. It's got like a lot of um, more heavy subplots, but rewatching it, it still has those heavy subplots, but I actually really liked the alligator in this one. Um, The setup of this one is that it is a team that is sent to Burundi to capture and bring home this legendary like 25 foot crocodile. Mm. And while they are there, they accidentally witness this local warlord killing people. And then suddenly their war, the warlord is like put out hits on them. And the entire warlord has shifted his focus to trying to take them down because they saw him actually kill people. And so the whole thing takes place in this like marshy area as they're trying to capture this legendary alligator called Gustav. And <laughs> it's, it's pretty CG'd, I have to say. This one felt way less good CG-wise than Rogue. Like Rogue, I really liked the effects on. This one, there were shots that, you know, kind of were groan-worthy. Um, but I did like the setup. And I did like that it's based off a real story, Gustav was a real alligator who may or may not still be alive. Um, Rogue was also based off a real story. This alligator called Sweetheart who was supposedly like stalking the Northern Territory. But I loved the story of Gustav because Gustav, the Nile crocodile, is rumored to have killed as many as 300 people. Whoa. So he's like serial killer level crocodile. And um, so much so that they did make a documentary about capturing him. Called capturing the killer croc, which aired on PBS in 2004, they were never able to capture him. But then this movie comes out three years later, and I kind of loved the the horror twist on it. Um, supposedly, real Gustav is more than 100 years old and around 18 feet. Last time he was photographed in 2002, oh. um, so if he's still alive now, like I just assume he's like you know kaiju size at this point. But um, Gustav, was...
1: if you're a listener, please chime in at us. Please.
0: We would love to hear how you're doing out there, Gustav.
1: I want a bot account called Gustav the Alligator <laughs> writing to us. Is he alligator or crocodile? Did we ever sort that out?
0: He's a crocodile. now, okay, crocodile. crocodile. Yeah. So yeah, um, definitely. This one, it was it was fun. Uh, more fun than I remembered it being the first time. I remember being really drugged down last time about the Warlord subplot. Um, but this time it just kind of happens in the background. And then Killer Crocodile. Um, first thing is-
1: I cut out of every script, my Warlord subplot. <laughs> the
0: Warlord subplot. <laughs> it's just
1: so weird in some of my more domestic dramas. <laughs> like, why is there a warlord? This?
0: Why is there warlords in this? <laughs> um, well, one that could have used some warlords was What Lies Beneath. Uh-huh. Man, so I rewatched this. This is from 2000. I loved this movie when I saw it in 2000. I thought this movie was great. I thought it had amazing scares and I have just been proselytizing this for the last 23 years as or 22 years as a super tight supernatural thriller and a really great example of like 2000s kind of more thriller dread films. Um, and I rewatched this and oh my God, it's boring. And it's like two hours and ten minutes long. This one did not hold up mm. for me. Um, and the biggest thing, and I mean, I tend to like Zemeckis films. I love Paris and Ford. I love Michelle Pfeiffer. The first half of the movie is a white woman in the window movie, which we talked about on here before. Mm. It is literally Michelle Pfeiffer watching her neighbor because she thinks he murdered his wife. In the meantime, weird creepy shit is happening in her house, which she thinks is somehow connected to that. And then you find out what's really going on literally by the halfway point. And then the movie still keeps going for another hour and 10 minutes with you knowing exactly what happened and who is haunting the house and hmm. why. And it just this one for me did not hold up. And so I'm intrigued if anybody else has rewatched What Lies Beneath and had kind of the the shift. Usually if I loved it back then, I think I'm going to love it even more now. It was kind of shocking because I put it in going, oh, I love this movie so much. And then I'm watching it and I'm like, do I? I don't know anymore.
1: Yeah, that one. I mean, that one I didn't love in the theaters. I was like, kind of like, oh, it's interesting, but didn't fully. Gra- but I haven't seen it since. And I have noticed a bit of a cult develop around it like i do think mm-hmm. it's got its fans i've seen some people post about it but um they, that and you know the one i th- I wonder like t- maybe i still think it needs another decade but i feel like mother might be one people start to like more like my that was,
0: students you know, love mother i mean yeah. great, they're like film students but they love mother
1: yeah like i love the first half of mother i thought was like i was so in probably my favorite thing <laughs> that year and then once it got to the point you know, a lot of point in that second half, I was way more out of it. But I've been thinking about it recently, kind of because it's just so, so stylistically ambitious, mm-hmm. that I can't help wonder if that's another one of these ones that will, you know, be seem like a bit of a dud when it comes out. And 15 years later, people will say, No, this is really exciting stuff. So um, but you know, sometimes we're too close to it.
0: We'll see. Yeah, no, we'll see. I always because um, I teach uh, an entire couple of classes in my intro to production class I always do part of it on experimental film and I'm like you try experimental film while you're in college cuz once you're in like the working industry no one pays for you to go make experimental film except mother yeah well, none of us it, yeah. Yeah,
1: or you can put them into sequences of narrative fiction films right like that's the thing a lot of the coolest things we love about experimental film have just been uh cannibalized into sequences yeah. of movies that we like our, even Michael Bay has like taken things that like from Bunwell or something and, yeah. like, and yeah. you're like oh weird I feel like I've seen that before but. you
0: can get weird for 10 minutes yeah. not for a whole movie unless you mother <laughs> and then well yeah mother was, was like
1: yeah a lot of cachet be, uh, yeah. because he had the star and he he had won an uh, did he win an Oscar for the rest? Had, he had just come off some pretty you know the wrestler and things that were so well received so at
0: that point you can make your big budget experimental film but that doesn't happen very often
1: you know he's making I think it's a horror film but it's a it, or <clears throat> dark drama with Brendan Fraser called The Whale and that's his next film and i think brendan fraser is meant to play like a 500 pound man or something like it's a it's a literally i think it's based on a book but it's meant to be something super dark so i'd love to see more brendan fraser come back and with aronofsky come back would be Mm -hmm. nice because Aronofsky's always been one of the more exciting directors out there it's just you know hey you gotta keep, keep swinging
0: no doubt you got anything else
1: no those are my all my new stuff
0: I will say I'm going to give a mad plug to the graphic novel that I read this week because I really loved it. Um, this one was called Mountainhead. It's from IDW. This was recommended by one of our listeners to me on Twitter um, by John Lees, who I'd read one of his prior books, um, Sink Welcome to Glasgow, which is like this neo-noir crime thriller with clowns. and hmm. um, was really cool, so I was excited to see another one of his books. <clears throat> the whole setup of this is that this boy named Abraham He's been raised by a criminal, uh, a paranoid criminal who thinks that the government is trying to you know, steal their identities, that the government is some um, sinister force. So he requires that they live off the grid and they're constantly robbing people's houses um, because they kind of view it as like stealing from the proletariat. Well, they get caught burgling a house and suddenly Abraham finds out that this actually isn't even his dad. He was abducted from his real parents when he was a baby, and they live in this rural Canadian mountain town and can't wait to actually meet him. So he gets completely swept up out of this life that he has known for like 16 years and taken to this weird Canadian, rural, snowy mountain town to meet these real parents who he has no recollection of whatsoever because he was taken when he was so young. And then it kind of goes from there where really quickly you find out that this town is apparently normally very bucolic and very wonderful, but something is happening to the local townsfolk. It's a true like, hey, this town's kind of weird story where people just suddenly start having breakdowns and they call it mountain head, like you've been out in the cold too long or you've been isolated up in the mountains too long, and they refer to it as kind of, you know, a mountain sickness mm. thing that happens when you're isolated or, you know, start getting elements of uh, frostbite, um, but in hypothermia. But he starts to think that there's something more going on, and there is. It gets totally thin. This goes like full thing by the end. Amazing gore effects, really cool monster effects. This is super goopy, super gory, and it comes on really slow. But man, it hits hard once it gets going. I had a blast with this one. So if you are looking for like true horror kind of Lovecraftian thing-ish transformation, body ripping apart, I grew five mouths type horror thing. um, Mountainhead by IDW.
1: Mm. And you own this or you rented it?
0: I No, this I is a graphic novel. Oh, I
1: know, but I, some, I thought you borrowed some from the library. Or something.
0: I do. I get a lot from the library. Great question. No, I bought this one because this was recommended off of Twitter and the Burbank Library didn't have it.
1: So. You mentioned like four um, that I, the Autumnal was one. I want to literally just mm-hmm. come and borrow like four of your-
0: Feel free. Novels. You can go through. I have, I have literally an entire bookcase just dedicated to my graphic novel collection. Okay. Um, so you may come borrow anytime, but Autumnal was really great. Um, right now for next week, I will be reading Red Hook is my newest Fork. acquisition. Red Fork, thank you. Um <laughs> Red Hook.
1: Red Hook's So rote.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so rote. That's where I used to park my car when I okay. lived in the city. I parked my car in Red Hook. It was broken into twice. Um, anywho's they yeah. built a lovely IKEA out there while I was there. That nice. was like 10 years ago um but anyway so yeah this one red fork is um i've heard it's also thing ish um body horror mm-hmm. and this one yeah so i'm excited to dig into this into too. it
1: well you did just speak about a town that was kind of desolate and with weird people so yeah. that couldn't, couldn't be a better place to go to our next guest
0: let's head into some weird off season Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Athletic Greens and their nutrition drink, AG1, a product that Elric and I have been taking every day. After months of being in quarantine, Elric and I both wanted to improve our health in the new year. So we decided to try Athletic Greens. It's a health supplement that actually tastes great and really boosts your energy. Plus, it's from New Zealand, which Elric loves.
1: So what is AG1? Uh, With one delicious scoop of athletic greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, all those things.
0: I started taking mine daily right before my breakfast um, and before I started in with the coffee. So it became this thing that I was looking forward to as soon as I got up in the morning. It lets me know that I'm getting the nutrients I need. And after trying to choke down an assortment of homemade kale and quinoa smoothies I was making, I got to say, the taste of this is great. It's got this wonderful lemon flavor. And it's lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, vegan, dairy free, paleo, or gluten free. As you guys know, I have crazy food allergies, and it is free from all of the eight major allergens, which I was really impressed with. AG1, it's a small micro habit with big benefits, and it costs less than $3 a day, so, way cheaper than the cold brew habit.
1: Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. I take it like 30 minutes before coffee, and it actually has given me a little boost of energy, which has been great. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash c-o-t-d again that is athleticgreens.com backslash c-o-t-d to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance today's colors of the dark is sponsored by better help online therapy Relationships take work, especially the most important one you can have in your life, your relationship with yourself. A lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? So this month's BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you make just as much as everyone else does. So this month's BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does. And therapy is a great way to make sure you show up for yourself. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Colors of the Dark listeners get 10% off their m- first month at BetterHelp.com. cotd That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com. C O T D. All right, uh, welcome back and joining us after years of never being able to Zoom or Skype guests, and we finally can. So sometimes we can talk to people on other coasts. And one of the people, uh, such people we always wanted to talk to, was uh, Mickey Keating, who had made a whole bunch of movies during. The period in which we were doing the first couple shows, but um, I'm kind of glad it didn't work out because to be honest, I think this is my favorite of them. So it might have timed perfectly. So welcome to the
2: show, Mickey Keating. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. I'm glad I finally got to work out.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I had first mentioned that I wanted to talk to you after Pod because I was such a huge fan of Pod, the effects in it, just kind of the whole setup. I love slow burn sci-fi is is it's not a subgenre but it really should be. Um and I loved that one so much, but I think that was probably the first one where I was like I really want to talk to him and and kind of break down the process. That's um, funny. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this
2: movie's, uh, off-season's a little pod-esque in ways. <laughs> Certainly goes there.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but we also don't, I mean, I don't know, like, we have a lot of mutual friends and just people off, you know, even not just movie makers in the circle. So I'm very curious uh, to hear a bit about your origin, because, like, I don't know when you, st- you obviously started making movies very young. So I'd be curious to hear about that process leading up to, is ritual the first feature?
2: Yes. So ritual is the first uh, feature that I I made and I uh, filmed it. So basically I'm from Orlando, Florida and I grew up making movies. This was Mm -hmm. the only thing I've ever wanted to do. I don't, have any other hobbies. I don't care about it. I only care about movies. Um, and okay. so I, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've uh, been making films for, you know, as long as I can remember. But Ritual was the first one where uh, I said, you know, I moved out to Los Angeles and I was like, all right, let's do it. You know, let's figure out how to get a movie made. And so, um, long answer to your question. Yes. Yes. Ritual is the first (laughs) film.
0: Well, I want to back up even further because when I was at Blumhouse, I remember kind of like getting all of these amazing people who had come through our intern program. You were a Blumhouse intern, right?
2: I was yeah 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 um I was uh, I did my final semester in college abroad in Los Angeles and I cold called Blumhouse and I begged them I was like I'll do anything I'll you know Insidious had just come out I was like I'll do whatever it takes and so um they I worked there then they promoted me to a script reader which was really cool <sighs> because I was constantly reading scripts and oh, yeah. uh, th- then I became Jason's second assistant for a while, and all I had to do really was just answer the phones. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, a very valuable assistant. And uh, and so, yeah, it was great. It was a great time. And now, you know, when I was there, you know, they were becoming the empire that they are mm-hmm. today. So, uh, you know, I kind of saw the the quote unquote uh, more humble origins, but they were always amazing, you know?
0: Yeah, Oh my gosh, that's awesome. And that's exactly how I ended up at Fangoria it was literally just like I stalked Mike Gingold until he let me come work there. So yeah, <laughs> internships are amazing across the board. Um, But let's go back to Ritual now. So I love kind of grassroots, I'm just gonna fucking do it myself filmmaking. So what was your process with Ritual? Like, was it just kind of collecting what resources you had and then seeing what you could do?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I um I was really inspired by like Richard Linklater's movie Tape. And, uh, oh, and-
0: nice one. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
2: yeah and um and the the third act of of uh heart eight paul thomas anderson's movie so i kind of you know we kind of concluded like oh if you know uh if i raise $25,000 by asking like you know my cousin for a thousand bucks and my brother for another thousand dollars you know we can piecemeal a movie together and so everyone ended up shooting the movie during on week weekends and then Mm -hmm. we went to our day jobs during the week and uh we shot it for like was like the longest shoot ever but it was only like 12 <laughs> days uh and then you know it was so long that my brother kept calling me up he's like where's my thousand dollars <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> he thought we had screwed him but um but yeah so then we we for whatever reason after dark films saw the movie and then they bought it and it like turned a little profit and i was like great i'm a director now and so uh and so how I old needed,
1: were you when you did that one how old i was,
2: was? i i had just turned 22 wow
1: yeah, and, so super young
2: yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I uh, I learned a lot, you know, it was a, a big learning experience. And, uh, and so then I was like, Alright, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit my day job, and I'm gonna go become a filmmaker. And then we, uh, we made pod shortly thereafter.
0: That's awesome. So Ritual was shot in LA was pod by pod time it was New York, right?
2: Pod was in in a place called Round Pond Maine and uh, oh, wow. it, it was the the cabin was owned by uh one of the producer's stepbrothers and it was so isolated that I couldn't even Uh, look at it on Google Maps. So I was literally just taking, I was writing a script just like, all right, interior cabin, we'll figure it out. Uh, (laughs) And it was, it was, it was literally, we got there in February and a blizzard happened. And like this 15 people that I brought up there to Maine were like, what the fuck is happening right now? (laughs) And so fortunately no one uh, froze to death and we survived somehow.
0: Wow. So when you're writing these, because you've written everything you've directed, kind of where where does your process start? Is it like taking stock of, you know, what you have available? Or is it starting with the story and then kind of teasing it out from there?
1: Also, because oh. you work in a lot of subgenres. So I'm curious mm-hmm. how that play. like if you're picking a different genre to that, to her question, I guess.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um. So, you know, it, it really does come, you know, I love writing and I write all the time. And I, you know, it's, it's just, it's something that I'm just like, you know, constantly doing and you know it really is an effort to be like sometimes i'll just c- have an idea and it sits for a year and a half or something and then other times like the pod situation was uh we have this house do you want to g- go film there and i had known that i wanted to do this kind of like paranoid m- monster movie um and so yeah every single one is kind of different but you know usually it's like i i love to write in a way that like I just see where the story takes me. And then hopefully if I can, if I have a general idea of the ending, I'm like, all right, then this this is a movie worth telling because there are countless scripts I've written where I've gotten to page 30. I'm like, I don't know where it goes. I'm done.
1: (laughs) 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 <laughs> and how about the fun, like each one without getting into specifics, like how you, I assume each one was funded in a very different way, like from the grassroots borrowing thousand dollars from everyone to the second film to the third, like, you know, as you obviously once you get big enough, you're getting production deals and, co- but I'm curious about those ones that were not self-financed, but what were mm-hmm. any techniques, any things that might help people, you know, who are trying to do the same out there?
2: Yeah. I So, I mean, um uh Carnage Park was actually the first movie my my fourth film that I actually got any money up front to direct. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, w- I I basically we have a running joke the first three movies were kind of we used the profits from uh the previous film to finance That's the next one. And so when I made Dar my my third movie Darling, you know, uh pod costs, you know, something it was stupid like like $80,000 or something. And then I was like, I had this other idea. I was like, I know I can do it for way less. And so we kind of used whatever was left in the coffers to, um, to finance and make that movie and, and, and then ended up raising a little bit more. And then, uh, yeah, Carnage Park was the first one where it was like, um, uh, uh a group of financers wanted to finance movies and somehow they Liked me or something, um, hmm. and uh, it's always kind of a. And then now it's like you know we have our financiers or companies, um, but it really kind of does always feel the same. It's the effort for me to kind of work uh, incrementally up because I feel like a big problem that a lot of filmmakers get into is they make a huge leap to a way bigger budget and just find themselves completely over their heads. And mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would rather uh, cultivate my own kind of films and stories and not have to sacrifice too much creatively if that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think and we see that with this new film because it's been a couple years, you know, since the last one. And I assume there was other things that maybe did or didn't happen in that period. But like with this film, I feel like at least the canvas, even if the budget wasn't bigger, which I can't, it's always hard to tell, it feels bigger. It feels it like your choice of setting, you know. When, let's talk about, about off-season uh, uh, in relation to that, like just putting this one together and where this mm-hmm. idea came from.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think the thing that was so funny was... Um, it was, it's, it's, it's much, it's bigger than my other films, but I think, um, it still was the effort to, to go to approach, um, a group of financiers and be like, I can do it for this amount of money. I know where the town is that we could shoot. I only need this so much crew. Uh, and it's a way easier sell to, to maintain creative control in that regard. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my process for after I, uh, in between, after my, my movie psychopaths, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And and then I had a couple movies that were like bigger uh, that just like one fell through three months before shooting because, uh, you know, the actor's schedule changed and then another one just fell apart. So it really was the effort to be like, all right, I know that I can go down to Florida if I have to and make another movie for no money. And then fortunately, this company came in and they, they financed it so I didn't have to make it for no money. But um, it really was just the effort to to, you know, do it and and, and do it. It's something that I knew I had control over again because Hollywood, you know, is 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 paved with uh, broken promises and and uh, financing that and that falls through. So uh, I learned my lesson that pretty hard, you know.
1: Well, speak to the location because you said you already had location. So I'm assuming that's where some of it's the germinated from.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Was was this Florida? Yeah. 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 So it was a place called New Smyrna beach, Florida. And I kind of bluffed because I was like, (laughs) I told the, the, you know, the producers, I was like, yeah, you know, I go there all the time. I hadn't been there in like, 15 years i was like i go there all the time it's gonna be really easy to shoot a movie they're so thrilled and (laughs) excited we could take control of the whole town and then uh you know we we went down we flew down to go like have the conversation with the town and everything and and uh you know we kind of i you know yeah you you pick up those uh those elements as you go. But I, you know, they, they realized that I didn't really, you know, have control over the entire town. But once I planted the flag and was like, this is where we're shooting, you know, it can't be a California town. It's gotta be Florida. It's gotta be, you know, Mm -hmm. Southern Gothic, uh, I think the rest of the things kind of fell into place. Don't do that. People uh, don't, don't, don't lie and say, you ha- you know, you know, can shoot in a town when you don't know if you can.
1: But that bridge was part of it. That bridge mm-hmm. was part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause that bridge, it makes such a big difference to that whole piece. That bridge feels like such a big production value. Part yeah. It,
0: yeah. The whole beach though. I mean, yeah. the fact that you were able to like, I don't think that everyone realizes how much of a bitch it is to shoot on a beach. Um, Cause I swear, like it's, Literally, it's worse than shooting on blood where like if one crew member walks across the sand, suddenly it's just completely, you know, you have to like redo the sand and everything. But you have this beautiful shot where it's her standing on the beach and then this stretch of nothing down to this other person, like a hundred yards away. Mm -hmm. Um, Joe Swanberg, we assume. And so, yeah, like even that, I was very much like, how do you like that? Like literally that's such a massive stretch, making sure that you can see this silhouette, like a football field away.
2: Yes, thank you. So they, you know, uh, the the nice thing was this town is right on one of the national seashores. And when we approached them, they were totally great with letting us film there. Their only condition was that we couldn't shoot with, drones uh which we were like mm-hmm. fine whatever um and so yeah i mean you know everything that was something my cinematographer mac was like nobody move nobody go off the path we can't disrupt the, <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing it is it's it's a total crazy thing but yeah i mean we we uh we got it and then it started raining and and we were very fortunate with all these little tiny elements in the film that um you know if you write it into a script you plan for like uh, clouds and a, and, a, and a squall in the distance, you're never going to get it. But somehow we, uh, we, we got very, very lucky.
1: I assumed you set the film in Florida just to get Jeremy Gardner in your movie. <laughs> I think that's a <laughs> smart
0: move though. Yeah. I mean, it is Jeremy More production Gardner. More productions should do
1: that. More pro- Hollywood productions should just go to Florida so they get the Jeremy Gardner tax credit. But
0: he was right. in Psychopaths he, too, right?
2: He was, yeah. And I, you know, and I, I, I was blown away by uh, uh, the battery and then I was yeah, fortunate but... to work with him on Psychopaths. And so, yeah. If we had shot anywhere else, I would have begged him to come be in this role because I just think he's such yeah. a brilliant actor, and I really, you know, I can't wait to see where his career goes. Um, I just love him, and but yeah. So he got to, you know, he could just drive there. It was only like an hour and a half to drive uh, wow. to the beach. I
0: and was always had like, had the same. Yeah, oh. we've had the same conversation of, like, Jeremy is so fucking talented. We're mm-hmm. just, like, waiting for him to get picked up on some massive film. What was the one, Fingers, that Ooh. he was in last year? It's another kind of, like, the little best. homespun movie, yeah, but Juan, he's Juan's so son. great in it. That and movie is it's just is so a fun funny. movie anyway.
2: Oh, yeah, and I met Juan, actually. He, uh, he uh, came to the... Uh, day that we were shooting in the restaurant, and and he was like introduced himself. He's like, I'm 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 a big fan of your movies, and I was like, wow, that's great. And so, um, yeah, I'm I'm happy for him that he has a movie out.
0: Yeah, it's fun. It's a lot, and Jeremy's hilarious in it. Yeah, Jeremy <laughs>
2: looks like he's born to play
1: a fisherman in this. I mean, I didn't pick him for the for the first second when he's like looking over his shoulder with the beard and he's uh-uh. kind of giving this one eye, and it's a it looks like an old, it reminded me of an old painting of a fisherman that you would see, you know, a, 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 something in Massachusetts somewhere. But so it was really cool to see him get to kind of go on. But yeah, we should tell people a little bit. Like we don't want to ruin any of the mystery. But uh, basically, it's like the, the classic setup of almost like an inheritance type setup. But but in this case, uh, we. Find out that some, something has happened to her mother's Jocelyn Donahue's character's mother's grave, and she has to come back to this town where she her mother has like very forcefully forcefully said never. I'd never want to be back there, and you should never be back here. And so uh, played by, and I love that you already dropped a PTA reference at the start of this episode, uh, one of my favorite performances in any of PTA's film is Melora Walters in Magnolia, and her playing the mother here was super cool mm-hmm. to see her pop up. Um, and she's great. I think they actually look really good as uh, mother and daughter. But she comes back to this town on the day where the bridge will be going up, in other words, the off-season, and people aren't meant to be there, and she ha- it's an emergency, so her and her partner, Joe Swanberg are trying to get over and um, a very, uh, a guy you don't want to put you over a bridge. <laughs>
0: Richard Brake. <laughs> Richard Brake. Not,
1: <laughs> not somebody to trust in any situation. Um, they go in anyway, and things get weird. And, and things get, they kind of come across, it's kind of a ghost town. It's a it's a seaside horror. It's a ghost town horror. And it's got a very Lovecraftian uh, vibe that starts kind of emerging as it goes. And, and a lot of, you know, what Jocelyn I always think is best at is like, being alone and looking at things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a whole lot of that in this movie. So that's good.
0: No, I, I could watch like Jocelyn, like, you know, cut carrots or whatever monotonous but she is just when she is alone she is captivating i mean her interacting with people is great um but if she like there's so many scenes of in this film of her running through graveyards in the town and investigating solo and she is so captivating to look at through the entire thing joe swanberg he's fine um but yeah i mean jocelyn's just she she just glows on screen the entire time
2: yeah. She's amazing to work with. I mean, she's, she couldn't be uh, a nicer person and um, you know, she was just totally game for it. And you know, it's like mm-hmm. what I, what we talked about from the beginning is like, this shouldn't be some kind of like, you're not a uh, mere Pharaoh at the end of Rosemary's baby off the bat. Like there's kind of this slow build of like, of almost, you know, when you tell the story of, of your mother's, Uh, this crazy story that she told you like you should be embarrassed by that like it's a crazy story and I think she plays and brings the character like such a level of like of of um she just brings her own essence to it and so I was very very proud and excited and the minute I met her I was like she's the one you know it's like like when when it comes to actors like I don't really I don't believe in like auditioning actors because if I've seen their work I know that they're a good, you know, I wouldn't want to meet them if they, you know, if I didn't love their work. And so from the first second we sat down, I was like, you are perfect. Please be in my film. <laughs>
1: And yeah, Joe probably. I mean, Joe's obviously made so many of his own movies. Uh, there's plenty on display, but he's he's such a convincing asshole in your next. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I still think it's one of the funniest roles I've seen in any movie. Like, I laugh every time I watch that film. When he's, I think he's got an arrow in his back, and he's still defending why he's always the master <laughs> runner of the family. And it's and it's just like, no, he's he's really good. So it's it's interesting to see his energy coming. And he's and he's a big imposing guy, yeah. in his way, which I think is really effective. No, it's a really effective mm-hmm. cast, and it's a really weird. Uh, you know pull you in slowly movie and, and it kind of leads us to some of the stuff we were talking about like some of your influences slash you know on this film or some of the kind of pick favorite movies you had and we we wrote down a few from yours and we were going to have to chime in with a couple deserted town ones too but like you can talk us through some of the ones you, you jotted down and how they might have affected
2: the film sure sure um. yeah yeah um so i mean first and foremost you know i i, I this one it's funny because i think with my previous movies there were definitely like strong anchor points right where it's like mm-hmm. okay this is my homage to this and and you know these movies that i got or things that i referenced were kind of um dealing with like the vibe that i really kind of wanted to capture so i mean first and foremost that the short the short story by shirley jackson uh the summer people is like mm-hmm. was was the jumping off point for this movie because i was like it cuts off when you're supposed to find out what happens to the summer people. Like, uh, you know, I thought that was brilliant. And that kind of, whenever I read something that really gets my mind going, I'm like, you know, I think it's just an absolute masterpiece. Um, And then, and so that was, the, and then obviously, you know, I'm the, I love the twilight zone. I uh, am Rod Serling. I, he's my god um and so the three episodes for sure that i absolutely adore are the pilot you know where it's just a character Mm -hmm. wandering around you know trying to find answers on this creepy little town and then elegy which you know the the astronauts land um and and they're in this little town where everybody's just frozen and you know if I, I'm sure everyone's seen all these episodes at this point, but if you haven't seen it, has got a great twist. You um, and- would
0: be surprised. My students at USC, none of them. Have seen Twilight Zone. I might as well be referencing like something from the eighteen hundreds or sixteen hundreds. So. Oh, it's a so Jordan Peele show on Paramount Plus. Oh. I, <laughs> I end up showing so many Twilight Zone move like the episodes in my class because it's they're very concise, they're very to the point, and it sets up kind of a wonderful historical reference. But yeah, mm-hmm. um, they though I think that you know they were still running on TV when I was a kid, so I yeah. watched a lot of them, and my mom did. I don't think younger generations are getting them to quite the same degree that we would have
2: oh it's it's such a drag and it's really kind of depressing because Mm -hmm. i was just on the new year uh you know it always plays on the sci-fi channel and i noticed that the sci-fi channel edits them down and Mm -hmm. so there are moments that um that you lose out on and so uh i i think that you know that's one of the the most if you're looking to like learn about storytelling i think rod serling there's nobody better and that's kind of what's influenced my entire career as a writer because he thrusts these characters into the situation right he explains what he needs to and uh and that's the answer and that's because and i think that's really really thrilling to me and so the the third one on that is uh is the one called stop over at a quiet town where these people just wake up and suddenly they're in this abandoned empty town that's so idyllic and beautiful but Mm -hmm. there's something creepy afoot so um those, I think, you know, from from the beginning, where I was like, you know, since I watched them at the beginning, I was like this, I'm going to make something like this one day and off season kind of is. is that. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, it, it's a good jumping up, But also, they like people haven't seen these in 40 years, a lot of the people and I, I can't think of anyone whose uh, mind or voice I would have rather have heard in the last two years than Serling, like if mm-hmm. Serling had been alive the last two to four years of America, right, and pandemic and Trump, it, it's just I think it would have been a, a voice that would have been helped a lot of us. <laughs> (laughs)
2: 100 percent i mean you know he was he was always so um he you know he had his very very vocal strong opinions you know uh, about that and he was right on the money with so many things especially you know it's like he there's so many episodes of the twilight zone that kind of like are cautionary tales for somebody like donald trump um and so it's just absolutely you know phenomenal um and then so the other ones that I, the other uh, creepy town ones, um, this isn't really like uh a it's not really like this is more of a vibe and there's moments of it is Red Desert by Antonioni, which I just mm-hmm. think is like absolutely brilliant. And there are moments in that movie where M- Monica Vitti, who is just wonderful and she just passed away actually um but she's just like a a, an incredible actor of that time she's just looking at people staring at her in 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 the smoke in the fog and i just think like you know uh it's it's just a brilliant kind of unsettling moment and antonioni is just such a master and actually there's a sound that pulsates throughout red desert it's almost like this this um horn sound that's like in the distance and we use something similar to that in off season as like an homage to, you know, almost like the, the, the lighthouse kind of sound. Oh, that's um, cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, he's the master of isolation. He's a, mm-hmm. and, and Le Ventura has the similar kind of thing where you're kind of lost in a space. A lot mm-hmm. of this, but the red Desert's all like painted. Every image you see has been like every tree is painted. Like, yeah. when, <laughs> like you don't know it when you're watching it, but it's like so designed. Ah. Uh, so I think it's, I, no, I love it when we can bring in like art house and foreign films because it shows that like when you, Pull, there's so much good stuff to pull from. Ooh. I think sometimes <laughs> horror directors don't realize you can't. if you're going to steal from stuff, Hey, we should be looking at some of the stuff that, you know, obviously Japanese cinema, I think has been well uh, tread over, but maybe not so much European stuff for horror. I think
2: for sure. On absolutely. That, oh, go ahead.
0: On that note, I don't know if it was a direct reference or not, but as soon as you had, um, there was a scene where the character walked into the bar and everyone was frozen. Um, it, that, that, was it reminded me of this fantastic opening of Just Franco's Venus and Furs, Mm, um, mm -hmm. where he goes into the party and everyone is frozen except for the, the kind of nymphette, his obsession in it. And so he's walking around and like the smoke is still coming up from the cigarettes. You still see people kind of like frozen in position. It's so fucking creepy. Uh-huh. Um, and it was such just cool to see that kind of done again so well.
2: Oh, wow. Well, they, I, it's funny. Yes. I mean, uh, that wasn't intentional, but I will totally take that. <laughs> you know, absolutely. And, 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 you know, and I think that's the fun thing. It's like, you know, you can, uh, the thing that I love about film uh, is that you can just see a, one image can plant itself in your Mm -hmm. head and and create a whole different story i just watched uh because uh, we watch we have Turner Classic movies just on all the time and and from here to eternity was just on, and there's a murder scene in an alleyway that is absolutely one of the best like stabbing scenes i've seen in forever and i'm like you know i will I will one hundred percent use that as a reference <laughs> somewhere down the line because it's totally brilliant and you don't see anything so you know that's that's the thing that's really kind of exciting you know my movies kind of are I draw influence. I love the horror genre, um, but, I, but I draw influence from everywhere. Uh, you know. And so um, I, I think that's my best kind of uh, advice to anybody who wants to make movies is to just watch as many things as you possibly can, mm-hmm. regardless of what genre it is.
1: My, my entire life, like I've lived on this planet for a while, I've always wanted to do a transition between Antonioni and uh, Phantoms. It's one of my dreams. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. this moment has presented itself because you know how Ben Affleck is in that film?
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> Wrong, uh, So
1: you know, I, I love seeing these back to back on your list here.
0: <laughs> you know, Elric, I wrote down phantoms too. What? So oh wow. Okay. You know, you know that I'm kind of like a secret fan of that movie. I'm I've only seen it
1: once. I need to see half. it again. I need to
0: see it. again. I know someday. phantoms get so much flack. You guys, this I don't even know if you remember our drunken debates episode. Mm-hmm. This is like eight years ago now. That was one of my bold horror statements that we had that I made while everybody was drunk. Was that the first half of Phantoms is actually a really fucking good movie. Yeah. And you guys dogged the shit no, out of it. I can
1: remember the first half being actually pretty good and then I can't remember what happened. It's really
0: it. scary. There's like the music coming out of the drains. It's a desolate town. There's no one there. You're finding weird stuff. There's like a scene where they find watch parts. Like it's really unnerving and well put together until the dog starts talking and then it gets weird.
2: <laughs> right, right. It really is one of those movies where I was like, man this is really creepy and they're nailing the tone and then it just goes off off the rails it literally is like takes his left hand turn and i'm just like i was i was mesmerized because i was like if the whole movie is like this first act and they're just kind of running around trying to figure out what's going on i'm sold i'm done this movie's Mm -hmm. incredible um and i totally i mean definitely what i love one of my favorite film festivals is Telluride Horror Show, and that town is just like the town in *Phantoms*. And I think that was the first thing I said to Ted, the programmer, when we when I visited there, and he's like, uh, "Okay, great, thanks." <laughs> you
0: know, but there's this amazing shot in *Phantoms* that you did something similar in this movie, where um, you see a character, and there's there's one person in front of them, and they're looking around and and turning, and then when they turn back. The entire town is there, Uh Um, uh and it happens so quickly. And you did it with Jocelyn on the beach. Uh Yeah, (laughs) I mean, having read your list, I was like, "Oh, I see the phantoms there." So it's still, it's a cool shot. Even that one happens after the kind of, you know, it went off the rails point. It's still a really cool Wait, isn't
1: shot. Peter a tool in that movie? He is,
0: yeah.
2: yes. He
1: is collecting How the hell did care. they get Peter? Yeah, exactly. All right, <laughs> All right I'll come back. I'm going to come back to Phantoms.
0: I'll give it another shot. You know, I own yeah. it. I feel like I need to rewatch it now because I don't think I've watched it since I made that bold horror yeah. statement on the drunken debates like 10 years ago. <laughs> but I'm trusting
1: you because the next one is what I, I just talked about it, like a few weeks back because I really like it too. And I think it's just, like, a great... In terms of just, like, great production value, especially once they're in the town, is 2005's House of Wax. Hell
2: yeah. No, I mean, and it's, like, that was is a great... One of those kind of creepy vibe examples of, like, when she opens the door to the church and everyone's just... It, it totally tricks you because you mm-hmm. think they're yeah. real. And then later when she's, like, in the movie theater and hiding and, like, you know, goes back to the church. I just think, like, that kind of shit is, is totally great. The, the movie really got, like... I think it got kind of uh, screwed because the whole promotion was like, "See Paris Hilton die." Yeah, but- it <laughs> was. <laughs> totally. She does have a
1: good yeah. scene, Pretty she badass That's kind of great.
2: No,
0: but that whole movie in general. By the way, have you guys seen the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre? It's almost yeah. exactly the same town. Like yeah. it looks yeah, it's a similar town, identical. Yeah, it's like- um, yeah. Which is pretty cool, actually. But yeah. no, House of Wax it holds up well. I rewatched it for this show maybe two years ago mm-hmm. and the the kill scenes are still tight like where she rips his skin off like the effects are still awesome and the town of wax that burns down at the end like it just holds up well
2: yeah you know? and I love that the movie theater marquee is playing whatever happened to baby Jane and I, yes. you know one of the references other references for off season was Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte and mm-hmm. uh, I that that's, you that's
1: know. very southern gothic yeah you're for familiar. sure for yeah.
2: sure and, and the character's last name is is Aldrich, you know but and, yeah. you know even though it's Robert Aldrich, but I just yeah, thought yeah. it was funny to say Aldrich. But um, yeah, I mean, House of Wax, great movie.
1: <laughs> okay, so yeah. now now uh, we go to some French extreme or Belgium extreme, I believe. Hell yeah, um, which is one I haven't seen for a while, but it ma- left a real impact when I saw it, which was Calvaire.
2: Yes, the
0: dancing scene. Yes,
2: yeah, yes, the dancing, the dancing. Talk about it. It, I mean, that moment was my moment. That I, that I, that that tone of when they all start dancing to the piano uh was exactly what I wanted. And and my my old Dancing Man in Offseason is my my <laughs> loving reference to their bizarre, weird dance. And I mean, that was that was a movie. Yeah, they're just like crazy, kind of like back and forth. It, that movie left such a bad feeling in yeah. in my entire psyche when i watched it but it's i've never forgotten and i've watched it a couple times since Mm -hmm. um and it's just a masterpiece and and fabrice duels the director is brilliant and this movie uh vignon is is also incredible um so if you want to feel really, really bad, watch Calvare.
0: <laughs> yeah, that one, Um, that was when I first actually started writing at Fangoria. And mm-hmm. I remember at that time, they were just handing me things. like, mm-hmm. And I would just blindly watch it. and would be like, yeah, whatever you guys need. Um, And I remember being blindly handed that. And it was just like a DVD, like a burned DVD that had Calvare written on it in marker. And putting it in and just melted my brain. Yeah,
2: um,
0: <laughs> that's God. awesome. Like, it well, was these, just so intense. The,
2: the,
1: these subgenres done well, um, do something smart. Like what you're kind of talking about with Jocelyn, which is the audience shouldn't know too much more than the central character. Mm-hmm. They, ha- they have to be discovering weird shit as it happens to the character. And sometimes these narratives can be too far ahead. But like I think Calvert is such a great example where I remember just feeling so... Freaking worried and weirded out by what's happening to him. Like I'm being held captive because because yeah. there's no logic to any of it. It's it's like he's he doesn't understand what's happening to him, and it's it's that's pr- as close as like that nightmare logic gets. I think. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I, and I love that kind of you know. It's like I think the thing that that drives me nuts in so many movies is is when a scene cuts to like something else just to explain the context. I mean, I mm-hmm. it really like you know. It's like I love ensemble pieces and I love cutting back and forth between stories, but when a scene is with a, not your main character meant just to explain something, I'm just like, oh God! Okay. <laughs> and So that's really I'm what kidding. I want, yeah. <laughs> and what I really wanted to, to to do with you know all my work and um. And so, yeah, Cal. I think it's like that—that that isolating loneliness is 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 brilliant. And and you know th- that idea too is the the other film that I, I mentioned, Sam was here, uh, which is which I've never heard of.
1: So this was, this was cool. Anytime I'm on a show and I've never even heard of this title. Oh, so. cool.
2: So I can think have it's to check like Shudder maybe, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just a really, really interesting mood piece. And I read on his, uh, you know, an interview with this director that he wanted, it, it wasn't about, he wanted to make a movie not about the narrative. He wanted it to be about a tone almost like a painting in some way. And it really is just this kind of like bizarre spiral into insanity with this single character who's basically being just tormented in this desert town. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's super short and it's like got obvious reference to like Silent Hill four. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it's just a really, really great, weird, bizarre, like what the hell is happening movie that, 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 is is a total trip um so yeah it's it's a it's a it's a great example of like uh i you know it came out in 2016 i don't think it costs very much money but it looks great and so uh yeah that that one was like i showed it to my cinematographer mac i was just like yeah let's just you know i don't know if we want to be influenced by this but let's just watch it to kind of feel it out
0: (laughs) yeah Yeah.
1: well because some films with like some films i've seen lately if it's a single character for, for a large part and, it, and you feel it's being made in the pandemic, that's mm-hmm. something I could get over pretty quick. Yep. But I never felt that with this one. It never felt like you were doing it. it didn't, I never once thought about what's actually happening in the real world when you're making this. You know what I mean? Sure. It's still just felt organically like the yeah. story you're trying to tell mythically.
0: And that brings mm-hmm. a great question. Did you shoot this during the pandemic?
2: We wrapped like three weeks before the pandemic shut down. Oh, oh
0: wow! Okay, uh, like,
2: literally, uh, we were all flying back, and we started to hear on the news that maybe this thing was going on. But we were like, "We're out of Florida. Who cares? <laughs> you know, this won't affect us." <laughs> and so, you know, because during pre-production, there was a there was a second where we we're like, "Well, what if we start shooting in February?" And thank God we didn't, because the movie wouldn't have been finished. Or you know, it's mm-hmm. like to get everyone to go from L.A. back to Florida during a pandemic, during new COVID protocol with making movies is a huge ask.
0: It's so expensive Mm -hmm. too. Like literally most of the productions that I'm seeing right now easily have to allot like 10% to just COVID testing, COVID protocols, things like that. Hopefully that will, you know, numbers are pretty decent right now. Could change in days, right? If they're taking
1: masks off, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I doubt they'll stay that way forever. I don't want to be the pessimist here, but yeah. Um, But Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, that's good that you guys finished it up. But that said, most of your film's outside, so it does seem very COVID compliant, Yes, if you weren't intending that.
2: Yes, absolutely. The problem was, you know, it's like, because I've made movies with a crew of six people and I've made a, crew, a movies with a crew of 30 people and Off-Season was one of those 30 people movies. And that just kind of like is a huge, it becomes just a, and the same with like, like the, the extras in the bar, it like it just would have been a disaster. And the funny thing about shooting in that bar was the restaurant had promised us that they would close every and kick everybody out uh, by a certain hour, but we showed up and the bar was absolutely packed. So there are certain shots at the beginning that you don't see off camera. There's like a hundred drunk people (laughs) furious that there's a movie shooting there really (laughs) upset. (laughs) And so, uh, that was one of the, that was a very surreal moment where I was like, this might not ever work, but, uh, fortunately we were able to very carefully shoot around them.
0: (laughs) I was going to, how did you control sound? That sounds nightmarish. Uh, we, most of
2: it was, not like we shot the dialogue stuff at the very end. So no one was there anymore. Um, and yeah, most of that was just, uh, we, you know, I, I usually with my films, because we want to present this kind of surreal soundscape in general, a lot of the natural sound is replaced anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we just, but I think the, the raw native sound, you could just hear a thousand drunk Floridians being like, they're shooting something over here, you know, <laughs> Trump 2020. Yeah. you know. Oh dear God. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 <laughs>
1: Yeah, flo- yeah, I mean, flo- no, Florida. I mean, Florida, I'm very curious in this place. There, it was, didn't have a real off season, right? Mm-mm. Like you weren't shooting it. Okay. So this place was just totally a functional. That's hard to believe because it really feels completely shut you know especially as becca said about the beach and and that bridge it feels like you found a place that you remembered from your childhood that really did shut down and you shot there that's the vibe
2: and twice as difficult was that it was like that main street shot the bridge shot like that's Mm -hmm. all practical there's no cgi and so what i thought when i was selling this movie uh i was like it's you know it's january it's a small little town no one's gonna be there what i didn't realize was that all the Canadian snowbirds come down during that time. So, literally, like the scenes where Jocelyn is like running down the main street, you would have thought like they were like it was like a movie being shot in the 1950s and they were there to see James Dean or something. Like, there were huh. oh, dozens. Of extras, you know, oh, right off camera, yeah. just snapping pictures. Ah, uh, so it's really like a testament to um, to everybody involved in the crew because I was, you know, having heart palpitations.
0: Wow. <laughs> yeah,
1: remind, I always think of Lawrence with movie making. I always think of Lawrence Arabia. There's uh, just seeing a one photo of like the crew just to the just to the left, all sitting around drinking tea in the desert. And thinking, like, in, when seeing your photo like that, you're like, oh, yeah, movies are made. Because, uh-huh. like, Lawrence of Arabia feels like it just arrives. It feels right. like mm-hmm. it just right. beamed to planet Earth. But, like, it was just a bunch of people, and as long as it's not in the frame, it's not part of the movie, right? Yeah. So So it's, it is, your film definitely, obviously, testament to that, too. Um, <laughs> I so, kept
2: saying that my... The, the quote over and over in my head, that's, you know, the, the Scorsese quote, where it's like, all that matters is what's inside the frame, and yeah, everything out of it does not matter.
1: No, <laughs> no which I, I always hate, like... When, during award seasons where where the chatter becomes more about how hard something was for an actor and i'm like mm-hmm. no it's like if they're good on screen great but you don't need to talk about how hard it was like sure. yeah like, right. like, like revenant you know yes it was hard okay well uh, to me that's off off out of the frame you know what right. i mean it's exactly. like what was in the frame but totally. um well beck do you want to throw out just a couple what well, maybe we'll
0: just yeah put, yeah just three a couple each, of just um Messiah of Evil was definitely... um, Definitely. And I can't call that... I won't call these deserted film. I'll call them like... Hey, this fucking town seems creepy films mm. um, that I'm throwing out. But Messiah of Evil is a big one for me. Um, mm-hmm. Just became one of my defining films and still has that, like, you know, hey, the townspeople seem a little off vibe. Um, I wrote down Phantoms. I also wrote down Dagon. Dagon's a more uh-huh. deserted town, but I love the film. And very one.
1: seaside, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's very totally. much about sea, aquatic car, which your film, without going there, because I feel like I want to leave some of that to people to mm-hmm. discover, but there is an interesting aquatic angle. Yeah.
0: And then I also wrote down Daughters of Darkness just because it is that seaside off season, nobody's at the hotel weirdness. Hey, yeah. what's wrong with these weird townspeople? Yeah. Um and then I also just because I don't think it got enough attention, I wanted to throw a little bit of a claim to The Third Day, um, which was the HBO miniseries that oh, yeah. ran Oh right. with jude law right. um really which good. was about weird little island that jude law is originally from he heads back to weird little island and weird fishy cults and something that very folk harry yeah very folk car oh, i loved that the, is there so like a cool. bridge that goes up in that in that show too it's, so it's mm-hmm. that is a setup it's the bridge the in that
1: yeah yeah it's little it's, yeah
0: yeah, it's got a tide. So the bridge is only open for, it's literally like 70 minutes a day. Uh-huh. Um, and if you don't cross during that like two hour time stretch, you're stuck. That's And funny. so that wow. that becomes part of it. Yeah, it's really, it's a tight, tight little... Mini series. And I think it was only like maybe six episodes. Um, but I remember binging that and mm. just being completely captivated by it. And not
1: hearing many people talk about it. I, uh-uh. I don't feel like it had, was in the chatter much at the and time. And I
0: thought it did something really smart because it was divided up. The first three episodes were directed by a guy and they were Jude Law's story. And the last three, and I might be getting that wrong, um, it was half the season was about Jude Law's character and it was a male director. And the second half of the season was about his wife's character and it was a female director
2: oh interesting and
0: seeing how they tonally differed and how it was still the same story but how they were kind of aesthetically differing mm-hmm. as well um even pacing it was it was a real fascinating study that was happening there as well because it was interesting. effectively the same story just from two different perspectives
2: i got to check it out i got to i got to make sure we didn't uh, touch too many of the same territories as off season mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: No, no, that one, you're pretty far from it. Uh, it's much more about like um, the loss of his kid mm-hmm. um, who he thinks might be. A, it's got more Wicker Van vibes. I'll cool, say. It's, cool. it's like a lost kid somewhere on the island type thing. I gotta yeah. check it out. Yeah,
2: uh, It's so um, funny that you mentioned Messiah of Evil because I think it's so, what's so interesting to me is like it's such a creepy town and yet there's a whole sequence in like a Ralph's and there's like a Texaco. Like the, <laughs> yeah,
0: the Ralph's is the most horrifying scene. For sure. It's yeah. such like it's a grocery store. It's well, a it's, Ralph's. It's all the,
1: they use all those places we feel most comfortable. A yeah, Manchester, right. A Ralph's. You know, uh, those are the creepiest moments in the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, Point Dune. I've always, I always think of the name of that town as. <laughs> I would be my number one too. In terms of, I actually thought yours had like the moments of her alone and especially walking past the shops and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's where I felt like the Messiah evil vibe. Um, cool. Uh, but a couple others, just real quick. Uh, one that we've already given a bit of love to recently. Cause I got a new release is dead and buried. Oh, uh, the oh, Gary yeah. Sherman film, because it's yeah, just oh, such yeah. a small coastal town and everyone's so weird. And there's a reason for it, but I won't spoil it for people. Great, great atmospheric film. But my favorite um, of all these kinds of movies is one that just still not, not enough people have seen. And it's who can kill a child. Ah, oh, uh, I was going to have that on my list. Oh dude, it, this movie is so like it, like I am not creepy kid guy. I am just not. I never no. have been. I tend to actually be turned off by movies about Groups of creepy kids because I don't tend to buy it. This movie sells it so perfectly. Yeah, it's just these two English tourists. One's pregnant. They go across to this little island off Spain after a body had washed up on like the mainland. They get there and just all the kids look at them weird, but not in like cheesy Hollywood weird. Mm-hmm. Or just like they're like normal kids doing fishing, but they're not paying adults any attention. And then there's just no one here. It's completely desolate. And they keep going about their day, and then eventually they start to realize the kids have taken over, and they will whisper something to each other, and it's almost like almost like a tele. Apathic uh, connection that is turning all of these kids and it puts them in a position to go if they're going to survive, they're going to have to kill children. Right. And it's like, and that's the central, you know, con- it, but it is such an atmospheric movie it's it's just like i don't know it's of all those kind of movies i've seen the last like five or ten years that i hadn't seen this is the one that i like really like made an impression
2: it's brilliant and it's very you know that's another one where you're like at the end of it you're like oh shit god it's
0: just it's such just desolation at the end yeah it just completely obliterates you. yeah and you know oh sorry oh go ahead No, i was
1: just gonna say and i'll throw down one deep cut because i brought up briefly when kayla was here because she had done the folk car, uh you know is it, this is a
0: weird French one. Yeah, I, I just was trying to, you know, to remember the name. Yeah, no,
1: actually, it took me a while too. So there's this movie that still hasn't got a release anywhere, but there's you know there's a file out there called Le Tan, uh, Litan, L I T A N, and it's this guy who he directs it and he's the star. He's like almost like an action-y guy in the in the start, but it's just this, it's kind of Wickermanish. It's a small French village. And it's very dreamy. It's like his wife wakes up from the surreal nightmare and they're going to be putting on a festival where everyone's wearing like their version of a Day of the Dead. Um, But it's so eerie. and, And what you start to realize is like the local town has dumped some sort of whether it's a chemical or something weird's going on in the water and it's it there's some parts that don't really work because you're like, what is that? The plot almost are the parts that don't really work, but the atmosphere is like as good and as creepy and as weird as anything I've ever seen. So it's it's just funny that it's basically invisible. Like this one wasn't yeah, yeah. even in that Woodlands dock, even though she covered like at least 20 i had never even heard of so um but this I, I think this is one that maybe could be fun to put on people's uh
2: i would love to see it so it, yeah. it, it, it was it just not released stateside or it just didn't I, I don't do know it. if
1: it must have had some release at some it's point so maybe a tiny. dvd in france or something but mm-hmm. the, you know sometimes that's how these obscure ones will kind of jump on the internet for a while but like it's the kind of thing that'd be fun if vinegar syndrome or somebody could put out because it's I'd never even heard the title when I Mm-mm. stumbled it. I hadn't on it, so. until
0: you brought it to our deep cut show. Um, I also just thought of this one and have to mention it, Race with the Devil, which oh. I know you're a huge fan of this Elric. Yes. That's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, just such a good, um, what's wrong with these creepy towns folks movie where mm. you spend the, half the movie just going, do they know? Are they in? Are they in like cahoots yeah. with the Satanists or are they just looking at me weird because I'm the outsider in an RV? Um, and it's and, like the yeah. one
1: you, we both discovered for first time last year, and most I think because the release was Brotherhood of Satan. Oh yeah, it, it's very they have some similarities. Like they drive into a town, no one's there. You realize everyone's hiding for some weird reason, and you can't. And leave then the they town. all attack. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, You know, there's something really cool about like eerie vibe movies like this. Yeah, you know?
2: totally. And and it also has my you know Jack Starrett. I feel like is the director of great motorcycle chases like that in mm-hmm. a small town in Texas. And so it's like it's so great to see like. Like that element implemented into this crazy cultist chase movie. That's one of those movies that I definitely feel like would be like, prime for an action movie remake that I'm not oh, yeah. surprised oh no gosh, one's yeah. ever kind of jumped on. You just uh, need recently. the right cast
1: because those two guys mm-hmm. are, are like just two of my faves ever on screen. But ja- I yeah. love that Jack Starrett's also like, he's like one of the sheriffs in uh, First Blood. Yeah,
2: right yeah.
1: <laughs> I love that that's crazy director, but yeah, no, it's, it's, those are all good all good films. So if somebody's having their uh, Mickey Keating Film Festival and, and right before, because I think they've got a couple days before your movie opens, right? This yeah. is the lead up. We just gave mm-hmm. them the runway.
2: Yeah, a thousand movies to watch and that's how i yeah. prefer it's like here it is the big the big marathon um no those are all those are all really great yeah absolutely and uh and race with the devil is uh, definitely uh one of my longtime faves so
0: <laughs> mm. well mickey thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight i'm glad that we we finally were able to get you on that has been one of the uh, good things about the pandemic yeah. i yeah. cringe to say world, that but it not, yeah. did suddenly we were like holy shit we don't have to have people in the studio this sure. rocks <laughs> thank you um, thank you so for yeah. having
2: me this was awesome
1: and tell yeah. us just so just so we get it right because i said so this will be coming out this friday so i believe mm, your film next, com- your what, film comes friday. out the following week yes oh, this episode i mean is yeah. coming out on friday oh. so people will hear this on friday but your your movie comes out the following week
2: Yes. Yeah, so it's It'll be on theaters, in theaters, and on VOD, uh, March eleventh, and uh, then it will be on Shutter sometime um, shortly thereafter. But
1: Excellent. definitely spend the money first. Don't wait for Shutter. Y- yes What's
2: what you're saying. <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> no, please. This one, <laughs> this has such a cool kind of blue um color palette aesthetics going on throughout. I do recommend a theatrical experience for
2: Thank it. you. We shot it for that. I was like this is going to be my theater my you know my big theater movie and then uh we premiered on an online festival and then it's going to go mostly online. So that's fine, you know, it's the beauty of streaming. We're in a renaissance. So uh but if you want, you know, when you watch it at home, uh just please turn down the lights and Turn up mm-hmm. the, the the volume. And uh, that's my one request.
1: On your phone, you mean, right? Turn right. up the volume.
2: <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> okay, I'm watching
0: it on the subway. <laughs> I will turn up the volume. When okay.
2: you're commuting to work. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> but no, uh,
1: good, good job. And uh, thanks again for joining us and look forward to people checking it out.
2: Thank yeah. you for having me. This was great.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to Colors of the Dark tonight. Please check out our Patreon show, Deep Cuts, as you also can go there to get amazing cheats, cheats, where we list um, 20-some films each, every two weeks that you need to see uh, amazing titles that you may have missed. And so please check out our Patreon, and we will be back in another two weeks with another exciting show. Thank you guys so much. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado.